Hello out there. Welcome to the Opportunity Starts at Home podcast, where we take a deep look at opportunity in America today and how housing fundamentally shapes that opportunity. This is your host, Mike Kaprowski. I'm the National Director of the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign. Research is increasingly showing that housing is a foundation for virtually everything. It predicts what kind of neighborhood you'll grow up in, the quality of school you'll attend, your access to transportation and amenities. Housing shapes segregation patterns, the crime levels of your surroundings, job opportunities, exposure to certain health risks, your friends and social networks. Housing policy is school policy, health policy, economic policy, civil rights policy, and more. Few things shape our opportunity more than housing. We have lots of evidence about it, and yet housing is often overlooked by our leaders and our policymakers. This episode, episode two, uh, we're going to do things a little differently. You can call it a hybrid podcast. So here's the deal. Our campaign recently held a live event in Washington, D.C. on May 10th. It was a phenomenal discussion, so we decided to turn it into a podcast episode. At the event, we had an esteemed panel discussion with six members of the Opportunity Starts at Home Steering Committee to discuss the intersections of housing and talk about why their respective organizations joined the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign. So we're going to play that panel discussion for you now because it really speaks to how and why housing must be tackled in a multi-sector way. The moderator for the panel was Diane Yentel, the president and CEO of the National Low-Income Housing Coalition, which is a leading advocacy organization which works to ensure that the lowest-income people have affordable and decent homes. She's the one asking the questions. Most of the questions are targeted to a specific individual, so you'll know who's responding. But the first question is for everyone, so I'll introduce the panelists in the order of how they start talking. So the first person to answer the first question is going to be Harry Lawson. He's with the National Education Association, which is the largest professional interest group in the United States, of course focused on public education. And at NEA, he's the director of the Human and Civil Rights Department. Second is Nan Roman. She's the president and CEO of the National Alliance to End Homelessness. Third, Marvin Owens, the Senior Director of the NAACP's Economics Department. The NAACP, of course, is the nation's oldest, largest, and most widely recognized civil rights organization. Fourth, Alice Demner from Community Catalyst, which is a big advocacy leader in the healthcare field. And she focuses on substance use disorders and justice-involved populations. And last but not least is Rich Hooks-Wayman the National Executive Director of the Children's Defense Fund, which focuses on ending child poverty. I hope you enjoy this panel. Uh, Each of these folks are leading experts in their own right. Uh, They really pushed my own thinking. I definitely learned a lot, and I think you will too. Uh, So good afternoon. I'm Diane Yantel. I'm president and CEO of the National Low-Income Housing Coalition. So we're a membership organization dedicated to Uh, socially just public policy that ensures that the lowest income people have affordable homes. And I'm so glad to see you all here. I want to thank you for coming out to hear a little bit more about the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign. We're really excited to have launched the campaign and we're excited to share with you uh, some of what we've been doing and ways for you to get involved. So uh, the National Low Income Housing Coalition, together with our founding partners, which were the National Alliance to End Homelessness, Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, Make Room, and Children's Health Watch, 
and with a steering committee of really committed leaders in various sectors, many of whom you'll hear from today, we recently launched this campaign because we recognize that we're at this really critical moment in our country. We're, we're in a moment where the affordable housing crisis has reached historic heights and it's most negatively impacting the lowest income people. We have a shortage of over 7 million affordable homes for the lowest income people. For every 100 of the lowest income people, there's just 35 homes that are affordable and available to them. And so this leaves the majority of the lowest income people paying far too much on their rent each month, facing possible eviction, facing possible homelessness, and driving them deeper into poverty. And despite the best efforts of those of us in the housing community across the country, the crisis is actually intensifying. But at the same time, we have research that's been growing that confirms how central housing affordability is to the outcomes of so many other sectors. You know, we know when people are affordably housed <clears throat> that their health care costs fall, that their health improves, they have better educational attainment, they have greater lifetime earnings, and they're even if they're affordably housed in higher opportunity neighborhoods, they live longer. So it makes sense with all this research building, with all that we know and with the crisis intensifying, that leaders from other sectors are, through this campaign, joining in the advocacy to advance federal policy solutions to make homes affordable for those lowest income people. The, and these multi-sector leaders are convinced, as you'll hear today, as we are, that until more people are affordably housed, they won't be successful in reaching their goals in their sectors, right? And we, as housing advocates, I think, are increasingly understanding that we can't do this on our own, that we need and we value and we recognize the importance of multi-sector partners in joining our advocacy efforts to get the federal government to fund the solutions at the scale necessary. So we've started this campaign. We're excited to talk a little bit about where we are today. And we're excited to invite you all to join us in various ways throughout the campaign. So everybody on the panel here are part of the steering committee of the campaign. So we wanted to bring them up here today to talk with you all a little bit about what brought them to the campaign and give you a chance to ask them some questions about the value of the campaign to potentially your organizations. So, um, so with that in mind, maybe we can start off with each of you and we can just kind of go down the line, talking a little bit about why your organization decided to make the commitment of joining this campaign as a steering committee member. So Harry, you want to start? Thank you. I think for NEA, which uh, represents uh, public education employees, K through 12, uh, as well as higher ed faculty, uh, understanding the impact, which you heard from Mike and Diane earlier in terms of the statistics, right? We know uh, that uh, young people who uh, have affordable and stable housing situations do better in school, right? That, that's just a short answer of it. And so if we're going to uh, concern ourselves with the success of young people in schools uh, as a, a, a union, uh, one of our uh, primary uh, part of our mission and vision, uh, then we've got to lean a bit uh, further in on other issues uh, rather than just only focusing in the sector that we exist in. 
uh, because we talk about the whole child, and if we're going to reach the whole child and be supportive of the whole child, uh, then we have to really be clear about the ways that children's lives are impacted and that impact has on their, their outcomes in school. So it's a really a no-brainer for us. And then at the end of that, there's also the issue around um, employees. And so still in a lot of public schools, which people don't talk about, there's still a lot of wage earners. We talk a lot about classroom teachers and their low salaries. But in a lot of districts, you still have public school employees who are, who are uh, wage earners by the hour. Bus drivers, food service workers, and then a range of people who actually cannot afford to live in the, uh, the communities in which they work. Uh, and so we can't also lose sight of that as we are also responsible for advocating for our membership as well. Well, as you said, it's kind of a no-brainer, I guess, on homelessness also. Uh, Homelessness is basically a housing problem. It's not, housing isn't the only problem that homeless people have, but they really can't address their other problems unless uh, they have somewhere um, to live. And in the homeless system, I think we've been doing pretty a pretty good job over the past 10 years or so, kind of fighting, uh, helping people fight against the difficulties they're having, increasing difficulties they're having, finding affordable housing. But um, honestly, I think we've come to the end of that. And it's just not going to be possible for us to keep up the reductions uh, that we've been seeing in homelessness if we don't do something about affordable housing. I was just in L.A. the past couple of days. L.A. has almost 60,000 homeless people in L.A. County. Uh, 4,000 of them are children. 74% of them are unsheltered, have no place, not even a shelter bed. Uh, to stay in, and they attribute, oh, that's nice, thank you. <laughs> um, they attribute that to the increasing cost of housing in Los Angeles, the reason that this is happening. So uh, that's why uh, the Alliance is so interested in this. Uh, we've been working on housing for a long time, but along with the Low Income Housing Coalition and our other partners, we recognize that there's a real opportunity now that I think this uh, the, the issue of affordable housing is starting to become apparent to everybody and the impacts it has on all of our all of our concerns. And there's a real opportunity for us to come together and make something significant happen. Hi, I think um, the NAACP um, was interested in being a part of this um, for a number of reasons. I think the first reason I think is important to recognize the fact that this year we celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Fair Housing Act. And um, most folks don't remember that the Fair Housing Act was part of the Civil Rights Act. And so there's long been this link between civil rights and housing. Um, and I think that it's no more appropriate today than it was back then that we ought to make that link very, very clear. And that we see the need to be actively involved in, in work that um, results in the production of more or more housing. The second thing is that as a for as a housing advocate on a professional level, um, the the powers that be are used to hearing from the, the the same voices. I mean, we're kind of a known quantity. Those who've been housing advocates over the years, and and folks used to hear from us. But the idea of kind of gathering a broader coalition of folks from all these various different places, different disciplines, different perspectives, to all focus in on this one issue made this an exciting opportunity for us. Um, when 
um, when folks were, were fighting for civil rights in the 60s, um, and you had uh, Reverend King and, and, and the SELC and everybody working so hard in the South to move things along, um, their, their fight took new levels when the coalition got broadened. When, when folks from the North, and white folks and black folks and everybody got together and started working together on these issues, that changed the dynamic. And I think the same thing can happen on this issue as well. So that's why we think it's exciting to be a part of this coalition. And we're really looking to make sure we move the needle on this and get some things done. So I think um, you know we also see a couple of reasons um, and, and that were behind our joining this coalition. And I think the first is one that's already been referred to, which is that housing has tremendous impact on the health of individuals. And we know, I think many of us know that you know you see those pie charts about what effect clinical care has on people's health versus what effect all the other factors have. Clinical care pales at twenty percent, and all the other factors, including housing are really um, the, the big factors in this. So we, we recognize that. And for a health-focused organization, it's really critical that we're working you know, to expand. Um, we feel we're working to expand the and address all of those issues if we really, our goal is really health and consumer voice in health. And so that's the, the content reason. And the process reason, I would say, is very similar to what my colleague just spoke about, which is you know, our theory of change is systems of advocacy, and that no one organization can change the world themselves, but that together we're stronger. And if this isn't a time for cross-sector engagement, I don't know what is for things that are just a basic value to our society and to our existence. And I'm with the Children's Defense Fund, and our mission has always been to create and ensure a fair and healthy start for all children in America. And since we know that low-income children, uh, this, the single largest expenditure for low-income families is housing, we realize that there's a, there's a great connection between deep poverty and housing accessibility. So for us as child advocates, where the foundation of a child development, a positive element of child development really results in safety and security and patterns. And how do you create that if you're insecure in your housing or you're experiencing homelessness? The connection for us in expanding the role of affordable housing is also a clear win for children in America. And that's why we're excited to be a part of the campaign. That's great, thanks. So Nan, of the people up on the, uh, this panel, you were one of the founding, you yourself, and the National Alliance to End Homelessness, of course, was one of the founding partners of this campaign. So talk a little bit about kind of where we started and why we started and how we got to where we are today. Well, I th and you've talked actually about some of this already, but I think we, we uh, started because a lot of us have been working on affordable housing for a very long time, and a lot of you in the room have been working on affordable housing for a very long time. And we've accomplished a lot of wonderful things and staved off a lot of bad things in that time. But what we haven't done is to turn the corner on the affordable housing crisis. The affordable housing crisis is not getting better because of our efforts. Uh, we're, we're really just stopping it from getting a lot worse at this point. And we really, ha we really have to turn uh, that corner. And I think uh, what has happened is what's changed um, in terms of what you've heard from the panel here about other people's recognizing it. Again. Um, if you've been on the West Coast recently, you know this is the, the affordable housing issue is a is the number one thing for the mayors on the West Coast. 
homelessness and affordable, the, uh, homelessness being the, the bad result of the affordable housing crisis. The number one thing, nothing else is even close. Uh, mayors on the West Coast have, have said to me, you know, if they uh, ran for re-election today, they wouldn't be re-elected because they haven't addressed the affordable housing crisis in their communities. That's never been the case before. We have the allies that we have here that have uh, agreed to work on this issue. Um, we have the attention in the press and from uh, authors like Matthew Desmond and Richard uh, Rothstein. So uh, I think that the, the situation has changed. And what happened was, uh, to, to get this all started, was a conversation that Diane and uh, Barbara Sard from the Center uh, on Budget and Policy Priorities and Susan Thomas and uh, Janice Elliott from the Melville Charitable Trust and I had a couple of years ago um, recognizing from our, that, that there was a change and it seemed to us there was a major opportunity to, to come together because of because this crisis was uh, that we have all felt was a crisis for the past 30 years but haven't been able to convince anybody else was a crisis, I guess, uh, was um, affecting, uh, affecting other sectors and that uh, we could potentially do something about it. So uh, the Melville Charitable Trust very generously gave us a planning grant uh, and we brought, and, and Make Room and Children's Health Watch joined us and our five groups convened an advisory committee, many of which are here today and have gone on to join the steering committee and started planning. And as Mike said, we uh, were supported by a like-minded uh, funder collaborative that um, was forming around the same time, Funders for Housing and Opportunity, also recognizing that the, uh, these were not funders that were, were, with a few exceptions, like Melville, that had, been f that had been committed to the housing space so much, but also recognizing that the goals that they wanted to achieve as foundations in other sectors were not possible because people didn't have housing, and uh, uh, got got a three year got three years support from that organization, and um, now we've taken off. Yeah, thanks, Nam. So, going a little deeper in each of the sectors, and starting with education, Harry. Um, you know, over the last several decades, there have been a lot of conversations about reforming education from charters to vouchers to testing for teachers, but not a lot of discussion within the education sphere about housing, even though there's so much, uh, well, growing understanding about how affordable housing is one of the best ways to affect educational attainment. So can you talk a little bit about why you think that is and what more we can do to bring house education advocates to advocate for housing as well? Uh, I can try. So I think uh, uh, at the community level, what we see though is uh, it is part of the conversation, right? So in certain pockets, you will see, particularly in the space around um, children who are experiencing homelessness. So you have a lot of educators, particularly out west, up in the uh, uh, north, uh, like Minnesota and Wisconsin, we have a lot of educators who do work uh, in, in, with housers, right, uh, to address some of those challenges. But broadly, to your point, I think nationally we've had a really difficult time sort of making the connection. So um, I think um, why that happens, I think both, I think all the people in this room know the complexities of 
housing policy and education policy tends to be just as complex. And I think out of many of the sectors, the only policy that we see that is as complex as housing and education is tax law. And so the people trying to confront it and talk about it in ways that are um, um, digestible uh, and understandable is difficult, right? It takes a real commitment to awareness and education uh, and really sort of helping people understand the impacts beyond uh, bonds for construction, mm -hmm. right? And so in many, uh, in the education sector, generally we talk about housing as it relates to whether or not we can get schools modernized new schools built in communities, and we generally don't talk about it outside of that. Uh, it doesn't come up in the desegregation uh, conversation, right? So we talk about uh, the conversation that's going on now around the resegregation of schools is sort of a, a false narrative because the communities were never desegregated. So we were moving children, but we weren't necessarily uh, really actually desegregating the communities because we weren't talking about housing policy at the same time we were talking about what we wanted to do in schools. So I just think ultimately, it, it just has to be a much more meaningful sort of effort and that's why we're sort of excited to participate. Um, I think um, the way that I sort of came to me when I was thinking about being here is we, we've been talking a lot in education about racial justice and so one of the things that's come up a lot in our spaces is that racial justice is education justice, right? And that sentence can sort of just keep, can continue. Mm -hmm. And I think a campaign like this provides and presents an opportunity for us to actually sort of extend, to continue to extend that sentence and extend people's understanding about the sort of the, how all of these different sectors, where they intersect. And then I think more importantly, like what the actual impact of those intersections are, because we tend to leave it in our sectors. So, right, we, wherever we are, whatever space we're in, uh, whether you're education or housing, you tend to sort of talk about those impacts without drilling down uh, across sectors. And I think this campaign gives us a chance to sort of break down some of those barriers in a, in a more meaningful way uh, to help people really sort of understand uh, how young people are impacted, how families and communities are impacted, how um, um, uh, educators in our case are impacted by it. Right, and it just extend that learning for folks yeah. so that we can lean, we can all lean in uh, a bit better. Yeah, yeah, and I think uh, you raise a really uh, good point about how part of it is knowledge, part of it is understanding, and part of it is language. And I think one of the things that we've already seen in the work that we've done as a steering committee and building out this campaign is how differently each of us talk about or think about housing and how much we have to learn about from each other about new ways to talk about it to engage new audiences and break through in new ways. So I want to stick on, um, on the issue of segregation that you raised for a moment and, and, and go to uh, Marvin. And um, as you mentioned earlier, we're, we're in the 50th anniversary of the passage of the Fair Housing Act. And I think, of course, as we're celebrating that and, and reflecting on that, I think a lot of Dr. King's um, sayings and uh, charges come back to us and one that's most relevant now is when he said paraphrasing slightly that he urged us all to march on segregated housing until every ghetto of social and economic depression dissolves and all races live side by side in decent safe and sanitary housing but as has been said right by nearly every metric America remains a deeply segregated 
uh, society today, and we know all of the negative impacts that come from that, from racial, um, racial inequality, student achievement gaps, wealth gaps. So thinking, reflecting back on the last 50 years and thinking about moving forward now, how at the NAACP do you think about how we can actually enact the policies needed to achieve Dr. King's vision? Sure, um, and I, I guess I would sort of approach it from a couple different perspectives. One, um, the affordable housing problem is a math problem. I mean, putting on my sort of developer hat for a minute, the idea of how you develop housing is all numbers, making the numbers work to develop the housing. And um, there's no shortage of folks who are bright enough to figure this out. Um, but there's just no political will to do it. And I think that's the part that, that sort of, not just sort of, sort of angers and sort of ignites in us the passion to do something about this. Because the truth is there's no political will to do it because the people gonna be impacted are people of color. And so that's the key that we keep coming back to. And so one of the things that we, we talk a lot about um, in our work is, is in, in our work on economic justice is understanding that, that believing that that's gonna happen over there and those are folks over there is, is just not reality. That we're all in the same boat here. And the exciting thing about this partnership is that we have the opportunity to kind of humanize this issue. That affordable housing gets sort of framed in this bricks and mortar conversation. So there's a sense that we look at it as if it's just about buildings, but it's not, it's about people. And reminding all of us that this is really about people. It's really about what impacts human beings. It humanizes this issue. We gotta keep this ever in the forefront because when we start pulling off into these other sort of areas, we, we, we lose the impact of what we're really talking about. We're talking about children. We're talking about the health and welfare of communities. Uh, we did a report, um, um, uh, well actually several reports, three reports called Economic Inclusion Plans where we looked at the cities where there was all this violence after police shootings. So we went to Ferguson, St. Louis, we went to Charlotte, we went to uh, Baltimore, and we, we looked at what was happening in these cities. And when the focus had been on police community relations and everybody was talking about how we have, have to have criminal justice reform, which is important, and we gotta reform how, how policing happens in our communities, that's true, but we didn't talk enough about was the decades and decades of economic discrimination that fueled the anger on the ground. And so when we miss what's happening to people, we pay the price. So I think that's why this is such an important issue for us right now. There's so much at stake, so we really need to be about the business. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And being about people and being about children, I'll turn to, to Rich next. And uh, the Children's Defense Fund, of course, a couple of years ago, put out a report looking at of all the possible interventions to help alleviate child poverty and found that housing subsidies, rental assistance, would have the biggest effect. So talk a little bit about that and talk about um, how you came to that conclusion, kind of how we, how we convince others that that's the case. 
So as we were coming out of the Great Recession, I think the Children's Defense Fund recognized that we had obviously not moved the needle on ending child poverty. We saw 13 million children living in deep poverty in America. And the, so the question we posed to ourselves is, what investments could we make in existing programs, not new programs, but existing federal programs that would actually go to scale in reducing the, the incidence of child poverty? And so we commissioned the Urban Institute to do a study for us, and we only really looked at nine areas of the federal government, and I always have to look at my notes. One is the earned income tax credit, increasing the minimum wage, uh, creating subsidized jobs for parents, uh, ensuring child care subsidies for very low-income families, making child-independent care tax credits refundable, uh, basing SNAP, food stamp uh, programs, on the low-cost food plan, making child tax credits fully re refundable, requiring child support to be fully passed through to TANF participants, and making housing subsidies available to any family under 150% of the federal poverty guideline. And of those nine areas, and we asked the Urban Institute to study if we made greater investments in just those nine areas, what would be the result? We found that if we made investments in those only those nine areas, we could end child poverty by 60% in the United States immediately and end uh, black child poverty by 72%. But of those nine, of those nine that we looked at, it was surprising to us as child advocates, frankly, because we weren't steeped in this area, I think, for many years, was that housing subsidies was the number one lift. I investing $23 billion in housing subsidies to cover 150% of all poverty levels for families resulted in a 20% decrease in child poverty in the United States. Um, over 2.2 million children would be impacted by just that one intervention. So that was really amazing to us because at the Children's Defense Fund, we had been spending about 40 years concentrating on, on health care, access to health care, and all of a sudden we realized, oh, we'd made some progress in Medicaid, we made some progress on the child health insurance program, but now we needed to switch gears and also look at housing. So we're excited to share those results, and you can see that report online if you want to read the entire tome. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So turning to health for a bit, we know and we've heard said today about how important, important affordable homes are to good health, how it um, reduces long-term health impacts, how it uh, promotes healthy, productive lives. So Alice, if you could talk a little bit about at Community Catalyst, how you think about the connections between affordable homes and health care. Absolutely, and I think um, you know it really is a current through um, many, many of our different focuses, and we really focus on uh, health issues across the lifespan and not for a particular uh, age group. But if you look at, for example, children and families, right, so you see the critical um, issues that we have when we have housing that is environmentally bad for people, right? We have asthma off the charts, uh, particularly in, in urban and, and communities of color, where housing tends to be not kept up. We have um, other other places where the, the issues of violence um, in the housing, you know, sects in, in the housing um, developments or in the community are affecting people's health and they, there's no place for them to go. They can't have a, not affordable housing to move away from that. So we see that and we work on those issues and we work on them from the health perspective, but we've been finding we work on them from the health perspective until they're blue in the face and it's not going to change if people's, you know, the fundamental housing is bad. So that's an example. We work on the other end of the spectrum. We work on uh, issues affecting seniors and people with disabilities and for them, housing and affordable housing can be the turnkey for um, a life that uh, you know has purpose and for thriving 
um, but apart, as opposed to being shuttered away somewhere in a in a whether it's in a nursing home or um, it's in a just a you know a home where they where they're um, don't have are able to get out and get in the community and really interact with folks. So we see that as another area, and then. The area that I most work on um, for people with substance use disorders, I mean, we've seen that again and again, the importance of the housing first movement, um, and which I think is beginning to be recognized in the substance use field, and we, we recognize it very much, and the importance of housing as the foundational element that and, and that harm reduction component that can come with that, that you need that to build on if we really want to get out of the addiction problem in this country, which is much, much larger than the opioid epidemic, and um, I can go on for about that. But there's a, you know, there's a huge racial component to that, right? Right. But all of a sudden, we're paying attention where it's, it's a health issue, um, and for many, many years, we just ignored it. We locked, we didn't ignore it. We locked people up. We ignored that it was a health problem, and that it had its also, you know, connections um, to the way people are housed and, and other issues. So those are a few examples of the way that we uh, see it coming up and and in everything we do. Mm -hmm. Thanks. So Harry, you have a multi-sector background yourself, like Mike shared his, and as I understand, currently you're the head of the National Education Association's Civil Rights Division. You were formerly a classroom teacher, and you worked at the National Income Housing Coalition as a field director for the National Housing Trust Fund campaign. <laughs> so talk a little bit about you know, how, how working in both sectors has kind of shaped your thinking about the solutions in both areas. Um. So I had stuff written down, but it's not working. Uh, <laughs> so I, I mean, I think um, generally it gives it has provided um, a different way to just examine policy, right? Or um, a better way to say it is when someone asks me a question about something that's happening in education, if it happens to be policy specific, there's a lot of other questions to to ask, but there's a lot also to examine, right? So, um, uh, for example. Uh, it's one thing for folks to, to come to me and talk to me about um, uh, uh, resource investment in schools, right? So we look at a lot of the school reform movement is based on schools failing, quote unquote. Uh, and in that failure, what you find oftentimes is educators saying they don't have enough resource, right? So if you look at uh, the walkouts that have been happening in Oklahoma, West Virginia, what got lost in the messaging, you know, folks got concerned about teachers asking for salary and benefits, but was also lost in the messaging was what their primary ask was, which was around resources for their classrooms mm -hmm. uh, in their schools, right? And so when we're examining why people are taking certain actions, right, we get to that point, and then to dig a little bit deeper, the re one of the reasons that they have a resource problem is because of housing. Right, so primarily, unless some local jurisdiction has taken some specific action with their flat funding, the primary funding source for public schools is property taxes. And we know that the rates are different for single-family homes, for rental units, right? And so if they're not adjustments being made, those schools being built in communities uh, where, the, where primarily you have uh, folks either living uh, in poverty or low-wage jobs, right? They are starting off uh, in a negative. And so what being in, a, in all these different environments, working at NLIC and now being at NEA, I think has given me sort of a clearer view of that, and it f sort of forces me to ask, to keep asking those questions because there's so much tied 
uh, to each decision. And so in the, in the education space, uh, we just, I think ultimately, uh, we, uh, we have to ask more questions about what the actual impacts are. So uh, when they're having the conversation about uh, deepening the integration in schools, you can't have that conversation without talking about transportation. Right, because ultimately, given our current structure, it means you're going to have to move children, right? And so, if you're going to move them, we've got to be clear about what the transportation policy is, what the community, how the community is accessible or not accessible. Uh, and I think um, it's it that's what it's given me. It's sort of given me that foundation that the answer is just simply not wrapped up in a bill. The answer is wrapped up in multiple bills. It requires a lot of sort of attention. Uh, and it requires people to really sort of ask uh, a lot of additional questions um, that oftentimes uh, we are so pressured to uh, get to conclusion and solution uh, in various sectors that it becomes difficult for us to do that. So we, uh, we push policy that is often incomplete, uh, and then we have to come back and add another piece of legislation on top. The local or state then has to come up with resolutions to fill gaps. Uh, and before you know it, we've got a hodgepodge of um, remedies uh, that actually don't deal with sort of root cause, right, uh, um, across uh, these varying sectors that, uh, to what folks identified, I mean, if we're not willing to uh, dig in hard about wh where the root cause is on, on all these issues, it just then becomes very difficult to come up with the, the appropriate solutions and remedies mm -hmm. uh, that have long-term sort of uh, sustainability. Uh, and then we will find ourselves back in these spaces again, uh, trying to rehash it. Uh, and it, what it really ends up is we've taken two steps forward and then we wind up taking a couple more steps back. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Harry. Um, so that, that's a really good segue into Nan, what I was gonna ask you next, which is that um, clearly campaigns to, right, clearly campaigns to do more on affordable housing aren't new. There's been many of them for many years and they continue. And what's new about this one is the multi-sector approach, but that's not entirely new either, of course. You have been doing a lot of work um, in the field of ending homelessness that engages other sectors. And Harry talked about some of the really important um, uh, impacts and reasons why a multi-sector approach is important. What else would you add to that? From your view, why is the multi-sector approach needed and what benefits come from it? Well, you know, it's interesting when you think about it on the homelessness side, it is true because uh, while um, some of us at the Alliance are very focused on housing, it's, you know, housing isn't the only uh, uh, issue around homelessness, and there's a lot of behavioral health issues, their income issues, children's issues, veterans' issues. And, um, and in some ways, I think, you know, homelessness, uh, we've made progress on homelessness in that homelessness has been going down while uh, housing costs have been going up and so, uh, against kind of the prevailing winds. And one of the reasons I think is has been the increasing recognition of other sector of uh, involvement of other sectors. So, the the homeless sector, for example, has added uh, I can't remember the exact number, but over 350. This might be 390,000 units of housing. It's probably the biggest increment of newer housing that's uh, uh, been funded by the federal government. 
uh, as permanent supportive housing through a variety of different funding mechanisms over the last years. Why? Largely because it's perceived to save health care uh, dollars and corrections dollars, criminal justice dollars, because of the cost of leaving people who are sick outside. Uh, in Los Angeles, back to Los Angeles on my mind this week, um, they estimate that they spend a billion dollars a year on about 100,000 um, uh, incidences of homelessness among single adults, a billion dollars a year in public resources. They're very motivated. <laughs> their health care, uh, the Los Angeles Department of Health Services, pays for housing people who are homeless uh, in Los Angeles because it saves them money on the health care side. And they've now been contracted by the Department of Probation in Los Angeles to rehouse homeless people who are on probation. Why? Because it saves them money in jail costs and court costs. So just on that score, I think w when you see the interaction to what Harry was saying also of these different sectors and the costs that are involved, people are motivated because of the costs. But more than that, I think also the goals we have for this campaign are ambitious. This is a two-scale goal to, to uh, meet the housing needs of, peop of poor people to pay their rent. Everybody, that's the goal. And you don't achieve goals like that with, as somebody said, I think it was you or several people may have said, with one sector, you know, the housing sector alone is not going to achieve that. It's going to take a lot more um, ways of explaining the situation and the solution and the importance of doing that. So I think that's uh, really important. Second, it's been raised also that housers have not done such a great job of communicating about housing and it very much goes to the bricks and mortar. It, it, it uh, devolves right away into, you know, basis points and uh, stuff that I don't understand either, having, even though I consider myself to be a housing person. Uh, financing, equity, and all that. And our partners, as Diane said, don't talk about housing that way. In fact, they don't often say housing. <laughs> they talk about homes, and they talk about people. And so I think that's important, the messaging and how to explain the messaging and explain it in different ways. We're only going to get there if we do that. And finally, one thing we haven't talked about very much yet here today, I think, is that what we're also speaking about in this campaign is is the federal government's responsibility to do something about this. And I would venture to say that most people out there in the world don't think the federal government has much of a role in housing and that housing is just an individual's, they might think they should, but they don't think they do. That housing is just individual responsibility in the federal, except for a few people that live in public housing, they may know something about that. There's really no federal involvement in it. And of course, there's a lot of federal involvement in housing. Uh, there's a lot in home ownership, which has an entitlement to assistance and a few other things, many other things. But I think we need our other partners' voices also to help us explain and to mobilize around the message that the, yes, indeed, the federal government is wasting a lot of money. It's however that you want to be motivated. But one way might be that it's wasting a lot of money in education in healthcare, in a lot of other areas, because it's not spending money on housing. To, it could, if it spent a little money on housing, its investments in these other areas would achieve much better outcomes. Not that, that's what I mean by wasting, obviously. It could get a better, it could get a better outcome. Harry gave you a look over. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
I should have started at the beginning. Uh, started with this. <laughs> yeah. But so I think obviously we we need all. I think all of us together. We're not going to get there unless all of us together are working on it, as everyone has said. Yeah. So Alice, the multi-sector work is also not new for Community Catalyst. You've been doing some work fostering relationships between health and housing groups in local communities around the country. Tell us a little bit about how that's working and what we can learn from those relationships and how they're building. Sure, and I think the first thing that I'll say is one of the reasons that I think this is important for a federal campaign, even if we're working at the state and local level, is we know all of those people up here in Congress were elected at the state or local level, right? And so it's really important that they hear from people who are their direct constituents that's gonna help us make our case. We all know that's sort of basic organizing, but I think you know this is a time when we need, to, we need that grassroots uh, really strong support and that, that's a really important part of community catalyst work is, is being the connector um, from the federal level and we do direct advocacy ourselves. I was down here this morning on the Hill um, but also uh, that we bring with us and, and, and build the capacity of state and local folks to come to Washington or to speak to their folks in the district and raise their voices as well. So how does the, the health and housing connection, uh, you know, one of the first ways in, uh, that, that this started to come up at, and, and our work started, and this is a number of years ago, where we were, the, in, in the Affordable Care Act, there's a provision that requires nonprofit hospitals um, to either have a, a, do a community health needs assessment every three years in their communities and develop a plan and implement that plan or lose their, potentially lose their tax exempt status um, to, to address community, unmet community needs. And, um, that's in that law because of Community Catalyst and the advocacy that one of my colleagues uh, did over many, many years. And one of the things we kept seeing as those started to be done in 2014, um, those community health needs is housing was rising to the top of the list, the top five, housing and also substance use. Um, but, but you know, that's speaking, you know, that was speaking to us about that importance and to, ho and to hospitals. And what we've seen and we've moved now forward is that a number of hospitals are really interested in putting money into, into more and more, not enough, but more and more into um, housing developments in different ways or housing, uh, supportive housing services. Um, and we've been really working to help with that bridging uh, between the health and, and, and housing sector, teaching folks how to talk to each other um, and how to, you know, how to understand their different worlds. And uh, we've done that <clears throat> some in, um, and in, uh, in Delaware. There's a, uh, a community development organization that is now working directly with housing um, to house, I'm sorry, with the, with the, with the hospitals to build uh, housing there in Delaware. That's an ex one example, a concrete example in Twin Cities. Um, there's that, that shared conversation is now going on between some of the big healthcare institutions there who have been talking about social determinants and working on it, but not so much on housing to begin to look at the housing sector. And then really on the ground, um, some work, really neat work is going on in Philadelphia where we partner and have for a long time with a, a very strong state-based health advocacy organization called FAN, Pennsylvania Health Action Network. And um, through the, the work uh, and our support to them, they have built a very strong coalition that is fighting for uh, the state to pay for housing supports and Medicaid, which would be huge in that state. And they're doing it by empowering folks who are connected with Project Home, one of the very strong um, affordable housing 
uh, uh, groups in Philadelphia, and they've trained already 100 leaders who are, uh, these are community folks who are newly housed, many of them newly not going to the emergency room, but going to the clinic at the at the the housing uh, project to get their health care and get coordinated care. And they went together and to meet with one of the influential senators just recently, um, state senators, um, and he said, uh-oh, I'm in trouble now. You guys found each other. So I think that's speaking to that, you know, that, that grassroots effort. Um, and one other thing that I'll mention again in, in my own area of substance use is that we've been working really closely cross-sector at the, the municipal level on what, what programs that are called pre-arrest diversion. So these are building a, a, a community response um, uh, that really is a, a soup to nuts services package for people who are at risk of arrest related to their substance use, most often drug drug use or uh, drug related actions. And this is really a recognition that we, we you know, from coming from the police themselves, we can't arrest our way out of this problem. You know, we're, we're just seeing cycles and that we need to do something much more structural. Um, and you know that does include true treatment, but it includes all these other things as well. And housing is is very important part of that. So those are just a few examples. And those those pre-arrest diversion programs are going around the, uh, across the country. They we were we were not the ones who started that, but we are now providing a lot of support um, to help local folks come together across those silos to really build those programs and make them stronger. Thank you. So Marvin, I want to come back to the reports that you mentioned, the economic inclusion plans, right, for Baltimore, Charlotte, and St. Louis. And you talked about how in each of those, affordable housing was uh, a key component for economic uh, growth. And, and in your division at the NAACP, you often talk about the economic justification for increased investments in affordable homes. So tell us a little bit about how you make the case and the connection between the two. Well, you know, it's an interesting um, uh, how we got there because um, the, the title of the report is called The Minority Report. And it's, uh, it's actually a play on the Tom Cruise movie, um, um, which was all about sort of seeing the cr crime before it happens. Mm. Um, and so what we, we, were, we were moving under the sort of idea that, um, that if we were able to kind of begin to address the issues like housing, like wages, jobs, schools, could we then get in front of what was happening in our communities? And, and so the truth is, yes, we actually can. You can actually almost see it coming when you see a disinvestment in, in, in our communities, when you see the lack of affordable housing, the, the, the lack of economic opportunity. All of those things create a, a, a mix that, that um, violence is, can grow in. It's like a dish, a petri dish that, that violence can grow in. So, so, so the reality is that when you begin to make the case that way, you get the attention of people who would not normally want to talk about housing um, or folks who are on different sides of the political spectrum. Um, but when you start talking about the fact that you're really talking about stabilizing communities and creating healthy environments, I mean, this is this broader, bigger language than just the sort of targeted sort of words that we often use in our, in our, in, in our day to day work. And I think that's what makes a difference. 
Um, so I think the, the, the work that needs to be done is continuing to broaden the coalition, continuing to broaden the language. And I would even sort of challenge the idea that we really got to get those folks who are the, the financiers and the, and the money folks at the table um, in our banks and other places where, you know, you know, corporate profits are through the roof. And the truth of the matter is, there's got to be some way to create economic incentive to invest in affordable housing. We got to be able to figure it out. I mean, we haven't figured it out ourselves in terms of how to make the general case about, you know, how to make the numbers always work. But there's some folks smarter than, than us and around that we could help us figure that out. And when we do, we're able to make the case that it's not only the right thing to do, but there's some economic benefit that can result from this as well. Because I don't, I think I don't want to have us always talking from a from a, a a perspective that is at a loss, but we are really be talking about how this becomes the right thing to do economically, how it really builds communities, how it really creates stronger places for folks to live and grow and thrive. It's mm -hmm. really important. Thank you. So I'm going to open it up for questions in just a, in just a couple minutes. I'm going to ask one more question of the panel, and then we'll open it up. But you know, we've talked a lot about kind of the big aspirational long-term goals that the campaign has to achieve. Um, we haven't talked a lot about the defense of work that's required, uh, mostly because we were very purposeful in creating this campaign for it to be kind of this, the space where we're able to carve out and focus on the offensive work. But at the same time, I mean, every sector represented up here has just a tremendous amount of defensive work to do uh, in, in keeping programs that exist. So Rich, I'm going to ask you, uh, because uh, Marion Wright Edelman, who of course is president of the Children's Defense Fund and a legendary uh, child advocate, she re recently wrote about the campaign and she talked about, she said, it's clear that such a broad new national movement is desperately needed at a time when housing assistance is under attack. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit, Rich, about how the threats, how have they created a greater sense of urgency if they have? in your organization about the need to work on this issue? And also, how do we manage the both and, right? Defending what we have, but making sure that we're still staying aspirational and being offensive. So when Mrs. Edelman talks about the beginning of the Children's Defense Fund in 1973, she said there was five people sitting around a table, right? Social action always happens around a table. And uh, she said they saw two major pathways towards ending child poverty. One was to increase access to health care, and the other one was to, to increase the access to affordable and stable housing. And they had five people, and they couldn't do both, so they chose flip a coin, health, <laughs> right? So for about 40 years, we've been working on the expansion of health care. But always in the back of our mind, we realize that there's a whole child impact, right? You can't take parts and parcel a child and only focus on education, only focus on health, only focus on child welfare, only focus on poverty. The child is developing through all of those domains and you need to have stability across multiple sectors in order to have healthy children and healthy and stable communities. So for us, I think what we learned through the healthcare debate and our wins on Medicaid and the children's health insurance program was that we now needed to pivot and look back into our history and reinvigorate our, our desire to look at housing. And so there is kind of this emphasis that the safety net we, we, the safety net we know is 
is under attack right now. There's this concept that we need to protect what we have, but we also need to claim what it takes to, to provide for child well-being. And for us, that's about housing stability at this point in time. I would also say from the children's def defense perspective as well, we've also always been about positive youth development, and we are looking at the millennials and the young adults who are now not finding housing opportunities, right? So anyone who's a parent of an older child knows what it's like to try to find housing when you're coming out of college with student debt and the price of housing and people aren't finding housing, right? We're doubling up as intergenerational families again. And so we think that there's a marrying between the graying of America who are also having troubles paying for housing in their senior years and the ability to see their grandchildren not be able to have the same opportunities they had to marry into a political campaign to really lift this issue up in a way that's really meaningful right now. I'm going to ask the panelists uh, probably a, a, a final question where I'm going to wrap three questions into one. <laughs> um, just to say a few, a few words about what you think um, is the greatest I mean, we've talked about some of the challenges, so start there. What do you think are some of the challenges of the campaign? What do you think is the promise of the campaign? And if there's people here who are considering participating in the campaign, what would you say to them? Advice or ideas? Whoever, yeah, whoever wants to start. So I'll just start. I think one of the greatest challenges is that for most mainstream Americans, uh, affordable housing, frankly, doesn't touch their personal life in a way that's meaningful. They don't quite understand the structure. They don't really, really understand what it means. So I think for all of us, one of the biggest challenges is trying to bring out stories about the importance of affordable housing, who's to it touches, whether it's deep poverty, veterans, uh, elderly, children, you know, trying to tell those stories. So if you're trying to get involved, I would hope that you can find a way to bring your uh, angle of advocacy or your community and try to find ways that touch affordable housing and bring those stories up because I think that's how you elevate the public dialogue. Yeah, I think about what you're excited about. Oh, um, so I'm totally excited. Sorry, there's like <laughs> multiple questions. I'm trying to do it really quick. Uh, I'm really, I still am really excited about the multi-sectionality and the fact that I, again, I think I said this, I think we're at this political moment where we're starting to see a confluence of public attention on the lack of affordable housing, both from seniors and from, from a youth child perspective. And I think that's where you bridge, uh, bridge building between a political action is the opportunity at this point in time. So I would say that I think uh, you know the 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 political environment is the biggest challenge that we we face, and uh, I think it dwarfs everything else. But I do think there's also the issue of the conflicting priorities and the different languages and all those differences with uh, you know trying to bring together groups across um, the sectors. But I think that's what's also exciting is that we're here and we're we're working our way through that. And um, it's our deputy director at Community Catalyst who is part of the steering committee representing Sue Sherry who apologizes for not being able to be here today. But, you know, really, you know, excited about that this is a holistic approach, right? And we are trying to break down those barriers. And, you know, that, that I think can give us some hope that maybe we may be able to make some wins in this tough environment. And I think that's what, what really inspires us to, you know, to, about this campaign and to keep in it. And I would say we need more. So come join us. I mean, you know, and, um, bring your sector into this. I, I would say my, I guess my greatest concern is re really that we would remain focused and not get distracted. Part of the political environment that you described is something that it just often feels like there's always something kind of coming from different places and it's always a new issue and problem and, and so we, we tend to be sort of moving and, and not staying focused and so um, my hope is that we will remain focused on this issue, that we don't get distracted, um, and that we don't lose our sense of sort of purpose around that. 
Um, and so I would, I, I think that, the, and I'm excited about it because the multi-sector approach to this allows us to say, okay, even though we may approach it from different places, we are remaining focused on it. And if our language is different, that's okay. We still have the same goal in mind. And the goal really is healthier communities and healthier people overall. And that what we're fighting for are stronger communities in, in the long run. So um, that's both my concern as well as my, my excitement about the process. Well, I share the concern about the current environment and whether we can sustain the energy of the coalition building over the current environment. And also losing focus, I think, is a uh, is a big concern. And um, on the other hand, my excitement, I would say, twofold. One is, um, uh, you know, is 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 engaging with the other partners. And, and as much as it's great to have the other partners helping us, I'm sure that we're going to be helping other partners too. So it's just. Um, it just kind of builds the circle of uh, people, like-minded people trying to make things better. The other thing that's really exciting to me, so I work for an organization called the National Alliance to End Homelessness, so we're not uh, afraid of uh, two-scale, setting two-scale goals and going after them, and I'm excited. It's just, it's just been kind of a negative time the past, uh, at least the past year and a half or so. And it's nice to have something to be for and to be trying to build uh, for something to, to in terms of what you were saying about I think everybody gets uh, it's 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 hard to just play defense all the time and it's really fun to invest time in trying to build towards something and in terms of people who want to participate I think uh, you know what we're trying to do now so I think on the housing side welcome and if if you if there are things that you're doing that you think us trying to mobilize the group, the wider group in support of them, you should let us know about that and we, we will be doing the same. And for people who are not housing people, welcome to you also. You saw the states that we're working in, so I think a, a really great thing to do would be to think about your own networks and how you might connect people to these uh, state entities that are forming, multi-sector entities that are forming. And as we move forward with all the things you raised about messaging and communications and uh, policy objectives, um, you know, we hope we have your partnership and guidance uh, through the roundtable for us in thinking about those things in productive ways. But I think we are going to not, uh, we are going to be focused on our goals and we're not going to just, we are not going to be another organization, another housing organization that fights every battle. I think if, uh, that's probably not what's going to happen uh, with our coalition. We don't have the bandwidth, I think, to keep the big vision and fight the daily battles. Uh, regarding a challenge, I think the biggest challenge is right the awareness and education on the, the issues and their impact. Uh, and I think also one of the bigger challenges, which sort of came up today, is just the deep entanglement and history of all these issues. And so we didn't arrive here 15 years ago, uh, right? You, Marvin mentioned this, we celebrated just a month, couple months ago, 50th anniversary of the Fair Housing Act. You can't, we, we can't have this movement with people losing sight of how we arrived at this point. And I think in that challenge becomes one of the bigger opportunities given 
the extent of the political environment that, that we're in, both at the federal level, but state houses all across the country that are uh, ravishing uh, uh, policy in their states, whether that's labor, health, uh, right? So it isn't just limited to the federal uh, level, and but to really sort of dig out of something like that, you've got to understand how you actually, how the hole got dug. Uh, and I think this campaign provides an opportunity for folks from a variety of sectors to really unpack that for each other, but also for the folks who call themselves our member organizations and affiliate organizations to really unpack that for folks to create the kind of angst and fervor that we're going to need to sort of win on the coalition's goals, uh, but also that would, would extend to our goals. So I think that challenge really does create, create the opportunity uh, for us long term uh, to win after coming out of what seems like forever, but has not even been two years. <laughs> uh, and so, <laughs> right on. So, I think uh, what I would say to people who you know are thinking or like I don't know or want to. I mean, I think it's, it's quite simple from where I sit. It's like we ha we have to do, right? So we're all of our organizations are in a posture where we're asking people to do the right thing, and that's not enough to be right. And so. Either you kind of get on uh, so we can get rolling, right? And this is the time uh, to do it. So uh, that's what I would say. That's great. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you for your partnership. <laughs> Thanks for this great conversation.